Good morning. Good to see everybody this morning. Hard to believe we are in the month of October, but I love October. I love the fall uh, season, the leaves changing, the cool temperatures. Uh, some of you are saying bring back summer. Um, I, I, I just know that uh, God in his um, wisdom devised four seasons for us to enjoy. And so rather than looking back to summer or even looking ahead to winter, as some of us like to do, we need to enjoy the seasons that we are in that God has given us. And so, so glad um, that this morning we were able to get up on a bright, sunny day, come to, to uh, worship this morning here at Eastside, uh, to hear uh, what God has to say to us, to be able to express our love to Him in song and in prayer. And I pray that, you know, this morning, as we listen to to God's Word, um, that we would kind of come with an attitude of saying, you know, know, even as Trevor prayed that, that we might learn something, most of us, if you've been in the church any length of time, already know far more than what you're living out in your life. We're, we're real good at acquiring knowledge. So I'm not so sure we need to learn something new this morning, maybe relearn things that we've learned in the past, but more importantly, that we put into practice the things that we learn, that we actually apply the, the, the truths that we know. And so that's my prayer for us this morning. And if you're just joining us, we are resuming our study in the book of 1 Peter. And if you recall from a a few weeks ago, I said that Peter is writing to believers who are scattered throughout Asia Minor because they were being persecuted. And persecution was really just starting to ramp up. And he writes to encourage them to persevere. He writes them to remind them that they have a living and lasting hope in Christ. And that our inheritance is imperishable, undefiled. And it is reserved in heaven for us, guarded by the Father himself. And a couple of weeks ago, we learned that we are to live as obedient children and set our hope on the grace that will be brought to us when Jesus Christ returns. Peter tells us that we have been called out from the world, out from the mundane, drab existence of life to a holy life of purpose and preparation as we await our Lord and Savior. And because Jesus judges. God judges without partiality. He's impartial. We are to live lives of reverent fear. And near the end of chapter one, we learned, uh, as Peter said so eloquently, that we have uh, been redeemed by the precious, precious blood of Christ. And that we have been born again by the living and abiding word of God. This morning, we're going to be looking at chapter 2, but we'll need to keep in mind the things that we learned in chapter 1 so that chapter 2 begins to make sense. And before we dive in this morning, let's ask the Lord to be our guide and our teacher. Father God, Lord, we just thank you for this opportunity we have to look at your word 
and uh, to get a glimpse what life was like for those early believers who were dealing uh, with persecution. Lord, our time may come. It has certainly come for many believers throughout the world. And so, Lord, your word is timeless. And so, Lord, I pray that by um, the, the power of the Holy Spirit that you would illumine our minds that we might understand more clearly the things taught in your word. And Lord, help us to apply it to our lives that we might be more like Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Growing up, there was one question that dominated my life. And that was the question, who am I? Now, I don't know if it was because I was adopted because I never seemed to fit in. You know, there were always these groups of, of people, of, of, of adolescents and teenagers, and, and I, just, I just never seemed to, to fit in, although I tried. I tried to play these different roles in my life, but, but I think as I grew up as a, as, as, as a child, into my adolescent years, into my teenage years, that was a question that dogged me. Who am I really? I didn't know. And, and so I, I, I dabbled a little bit. I, I tried to, to play roles. I would, go, I would go from school to school. And in one school, I, I, I thought I'd, I'd be the comedian. If I could get people to laugh, then I'm a somebody. Another school, try to be the athlete. And um, another school, tried to be the bad guy tried to be the tough guy, to try to earn respect. All because of that question, who am I? See, when you don't know who you are, when you don't know what your identity is, you, you struggle. Be because that is something that we crave and we need. We need that sense of rootedness, of groundedness, of, of knowing who we are really at the core of our being. And I know I'm not alone, because there are many adults, many people well into their adult life that are asking the same question. In your 40s and 50s and even in your 60s, they call it midlife crisis. It's really an identity crisis. And people can, can spend decades looking inward, reading self-help books, going to spiritual gurus, climbing the corporate ladder, working on their appearance, whether it's tummy tucks, Botox shots, diet fads, all sorts of things, and trying to impress others with our accomplishments, all in the hopes of discovering who am I. Identity in our society is primarily derived from what we do, how we look, and what we own. Maybe we can add a fourth one, who you know. Because if you know somebody famous, then you're a somebody. You know, we love to name drop, don't we? In our culture, it's hard to, to discover who you really are. The Bible, however teaches the complete opposite from the world. 
The Bible doesn't tell us that we are what we do or how we look. In fact, it's just the opposite. It teaches us how we live and what we do is determined by who we are. In other words, who we are determines how we are to live and what we are supposed to do. But to understand who we are, we need to first understand whose we are. See, that's foundational. We belong to someone. I love what the psalmist says in Psalm 100 verse 3. It says, know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who has made us, not we ourselves. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. The prophet Isaiah wrote that everyone who bears my name, the Lord is speaking through him. He says, everyone who bears my name and is created for my glory, I have formed them. Indeed, I have made them. And then I love what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, that we are his workmanship. We are God's masterpiece. You see, we belong to God. We were created by him and for him. And until we understand this, we will have no clue as to who we really are or to what we are supposed to do. And the writers of the New Testament understood this because they spent the bulk of of their time trying to help us understand who we are in Christ. The Bible is not a book of moral rules and regulations of do's and don'ts, though it contains those. It is more about who we are in God, in Christ. It's about a relationship. You see, being precedes doing. Our behavior flows from who we are. And if we are to live joyful, meaningful, fruitful lives... We have to understand our unique identity as the people of God. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn on over to 1 Peter chapter 2. I'm going to be reading the first 12 verses. That's what we're going to cover this morning. And then I'm going to kind of go back and hit some of these verses one at a time. Starting in verse 1. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him as a living stone rejected by men but in the sight of God chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame." So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. 
and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, and a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. You'll notice if you have your Bibles back at at verse 1, that verse 1 begins with a connecting word. Uh, Some of your translations may say, so. Others may say, therefore. And this tells us that all that follows flows out of chapter 1. That's why I said we need to remember what we've learned in chapter 1. Because everything leads up to this. So in other words, in light of what God has done for us, in light of our calling to be holy, even as God is holy, we are to put away all malice and all deceit and all hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Now what I find interesting here is Peter, in telling us what we're to put away, what we're not to be like, he doesn't immediately follow up and tell us what we're to do in its place. Not specifically. He doesn't tell us, for instance, um, to tell the truth, to live honest lives, to be forgiving, uh, to live authentic Christian lives. He doesn't mention living a life of contentment. What he does, however... I I just think is so important. And that is he lays out a picture of who God's people are. Of who we truly are. And he does so because he knows what I've shared with you this morning. that, That being precedes doing. Our actions flow out of who we are. If we get the who we are part right, everything else will fall into place. And so that's what we're going to look at here this morning. We're going to look at these important pictures or descriptions of the people of God. So the first picture that Peter gives us of the people of God is that of newborn infants. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. This is a beautiful picture. It speaks of a tender relationship with God. Because it's taking something that's earthly and and human, something that we can all relate to, and he ascribes it to our relationship with God. It is an intimate portrait. Many of you ladies have nursed your children. And you probably see 
friends and relatives and, you know, in the, in the hospital rooms, nursing their, their children. What a beautiful sight it is to see a newborn infant at his or her mother's breast. It is instinctive and natural for the baby. I mean, no sooner do you place the baby in the right position and it finds its way and it knows what it needs and, and, and it will feed until it's satisfied. And by the way, that happens like every like hour and a half, two hours or whatever. And, but what a beautiful picture of us. You know, babies, they, they don't go a day or a week without feeding. They feed constantly. They have to. They're driven by their hunger. So if Peter is likening our relationship with God to that of a nursing infant to a mother, I wonder, what is your feeding habits like? How often do you go to God's word? See, if, again, if the, if the picture is that of, of a newborn infant then we can't afford to go a day without feeding on God's Word. We can't go a week, a month. We can't leave our Bibles on the shelves. We've got to constantly be in God's Word. If we belong to Christ, then there should be this innate hunger to know Him, to know ourselves, to know God's Word, and to immerse ourselves. If that isn't there... There's something wrong. Now, milk here is not spoken of as elementary teachings as opposed to more advanced teachings like you may find in uh, Paul's writings in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 or in uh, the book of Hebrews even. Here, it represents the whole of God's word. And in verse 3, Peter alludes to Psalm 34 verse 8, where we read, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Taste and see that the Lord is good. He likens their present relationship to, to Christ to that of tasting. They have tasted the goodness of God in the word, but they now must continue to taste. They must continue to feed on the pure spiritual milk for continued growth. This December, my uh, youngest child, Zachary, is going to turn 20. So that means we will have no more teenagers. Um, they'll all be in their 20s. Uh, my eldest daughter, Patricia, as I mentioned last week, uh, she's going to get married in May of next year. Hard to believe. And she's going to be 24 in December. I had to, re had to think about that, but 24 in December. But the one thing that we have told our kids on numerous occasions is that you will always be our babies. Doesn't matter how old you get. Doesn't matter if you get married. You're always going to be our babies. That's, that's not going to change. Why? It's, it's a relationship. It's a relationship. And, and we've got the pictures to prove that they were our babies, too. So when you think about that in relationship to God, 
no matter how long we walk with Christ, we will always be his child. We will always be his children. We will always be his babies. And unlike our children, who will not always be dependent upon us, praise God, we will always and forever be dependent upon God. We are dependent upon him for our salvation. We are dependent upon him for our continued growth. We are, con we, we are totally and completely dependent upon him and will be for all eternity. Like newborn babes who crave their mother's milk, we too should long for the pure milk of the word. The second picture that Peter gives us of the people of God is that of living stones. You see that there in verse 5. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. We are being built into a spiritual house. Now notice I use the word we there. It's because Peter uses, he says, you yourselves. This is plural. So he's not just speaking to isolated individuals. He's speaking to the church and he tells them collectively that you are being built together into a spiritual house. And we know the scripture says that we are the temple of God. Now why is this important? It's because if we collectively are being built into a spiritual house... And some of us do not place the proper emphasis on being a part of that spiritual house. Then when the walls get erected, there are going to be holes in it. There are going to be gaps in it. Windows may not be finished. Doors may not be finished. We together are being built together into a spiritual house. It takes every single believer in the, in the local church to make up that church. And it takes every believer to make up the universal church. Unfortunately, there are too many Lone Ranger Christians in the world. I, I like to call them charismatic butterflies. They just kind of float here, float here. You know, they just, however the Lord leads, they use this wonderful mumbo-jumbo language. And they never get rooted. They never get connected. They never become a part of the church. And they, they see themselves as kind of spiritual lone rangers. Just kind of going however the Lord leads. Well, the Lord is leading you to be plugged into a local church to be connected, to be a part of it, to be a member of that church, to be held accountable in your walk with Christ. The other thing about this idea of a spiritual house is that if, if we are living stones that are being built together into a spiritual house, the stones then have to fit together. You just don't throw stones stones up and hope that you come up with something that looks like a house. My wife and I, we went to a castle down, I think, in Loveland, and we, we learned this, this guy built this entire castle one stone at a time. 
stone upon stone upon stone. And it looks like they all fit together. Well, I guarantee you, he didn't go out into the field or out into, you know, the little Miami River and dig up all of these stones and they just magically all fit together. Now, I'm sure that some of those things were chiseled. Some of those things were broken. Some of those things were turned upside down, backwards and everything else. And they were made to fit together to make that particular structure. I think about a puzzle. I'm not big on puzzles. I get a little frustrated with puzzles, you know, and I know there's a science behind making puzzles. You know, you, you, you find the straight lines, you find the corners, and you work your way in, but some of these puzzles are so intricate, you know, and at some point, I get so frustrated, I just want to take the piece and force it in there somehow, even if it, it isn't supposed to fit like that. Well, that's not the way the church works. We fit together. Sometimes, however, we may find that there are some rough edges that need to be worn off. That's why I love that passage in the Old Testament. It says that as iron sharpens iron, so does one man sharpen another. Sometimes we, God brings people together sometimes who may not exactly fit together, but they, they, they rub off on each other. Those rough edges get rubbed off so that they begin to fit together. Maybe that's why Peter says in verse 1 of this chapter, put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander because you won't fit together if any of those things are present. I like what the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2. He says, in whom, that is Christ, the whole building, that is the church, being fit together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord. And then just two chapters later, he says, from whom the whole body being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, that's you and me, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. You see, every Christ follower needs to be a part of a local church. Every Christ follower needs to be in community with other believers and those who are in search of the truth. Every Christ follower needs to find a place of service. And I know that during this time of COVID, things are a little bit different here at, at New Life. There are some ministries that currently are, are not running. But if you're not serving in some capacity here at New Life, if you consider New Life your, your church, then we want to talk to you because we want to help you find a place of service. You need the body, and the body needs you. But notice, as living stones, we are built on the foundation stone of Christ. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. This phrase, as you come to him, speaks of a habitual, continual coming to Christ. It's not a one and done. It's not, I prayed to receive Christ, I'm saved now, I'm good. It's that, no, we have to continually come to Christ. It is an intimate picture of communion between the believer and his or her Savior. Jesus is 
the living stone that serves as the cornerstone. We read about this in verses six and seven. And the cornerstone, for those of you who aren't familiar, it is the visible stone, <coughs> excuse me, it is uh, the, the, the stone in which the entire house is built. It, it takes its cue from the, uh, from the cornerstone. It's the visible support, if you would, on which the rest of the building relies on for strength and stability. The prophet Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 28 said, Therefore, this is what the sovereign Lord says. Look, I am placing a foundation stone in Jerusalem. It is firm, a tested and precious cornerstone that is safe to build on. You remember Peter's confession of Christ in Matthew chapter 16? Remember what, what Peter said? Jesus had asked the question, who do people say that I am? And then, of course, he turned it around and he said, but who do you say that I am? And Peter responded and said, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. Remember what Jesus, how he responded? He said, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I say to you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Jesus uses two different words that mean rock. He refers to Peter. He says, you are Peter. And the Greek word for Peter is petros, meaning rock. A small rock, but nonetheless a rock. A pebble, if you would. But then when Jesus says, and on this rock... I will build my church. He uses a similar word, but different. He uses the word Petra. Petros, Petra. And the difference between the two is like a small pebble versus a boulder. It is a huge rock. It is like a cornerstone. It is a, 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 a rock that is substantial that you can build on. And that's what Jesus, in fact, says. And on this rock, I will build my church. Well, what is the rock that he's talking about? Well, Peter's confession tells you. He says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus says, you're right, Peter. And I will build my church on what you've just said. I will build my church on me. I am the rock. And that's why when we come to Peter, it makes perfect sense because you have to remember that interaction that he had with Jesus. So when he speaks of Jesus as the cornerstone, you have Matthew 16 in your mind. And you recall what, Je what Peter learned in that interaction with Jesus. And the scripture says here that to those who believe, this is a precious stone. We depend on Christ like a building depends on its cornerstone. But to those who do not believe, there is only shame and dishonor and ultimately separation 
from God for all of eternity. Christ is our only hope. The third picture that Peter gives us here is that of a holy and royal priesthood. In verse 5 we read, You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And then verse 9, But you are a royal priesthood. Now we have to understand what the priesthood was all about in the Old Testament to understand what Peter is saying here. And in the Old Testament, the the role of, of the priest was to be a mediator between God and man. He represented man before God. He represented God before the people. Now one particular tribe in Israel was called to serve God in a very special way. They were chosen to perform priestly duties. Uh, That was the tribe of Levi. But what a lot of people don't realize is that Christians aren't the first people to be referred to as priests. The entire kingdom of Israel was referred to as kingdom of priests. You can look it up in Exodus 19 verse 6. So all true followers of Christ are priests. Now, I, I remember the first time I learned that as a new Christian, and I, and I heard this, and I, I just, I had no context for it. So the first time somebody told me, he says, you know, you're, you're a priest. I go, I, what? I'm a, a priest? Do I have to wear one of them collars things? You know, and, you know, I'm, I don't know how to, do, do, I, do I take confession? What, I mean, what is it that I, I do as, as a priest? I didn't really understand. But it's very clear in Scripture that every believer is a priest of God. In fact, last week, one of the verses we read during our service was from Revelation 1.6, where it says, And he made us to be a kingdom, priests to his God and Father. Now, this doctrine is known as the priesthood of all believers. And when Peter refers to us as a royal priesthood. He's not saying that we are all priests um, in the same way that uh, the the people in the Old Testament were like uh, the priests uh, from the tribe of Levi. Rather, he is referring to the holy nature of the church. Just as all Israelites were not equally called, gifted, or authorized to perform every function of a priest in Israel, believers are not equally called and equipped and authorized to perform every function of an elder in the church. Yet, Scripture tells us we are all priests. And we are to offer spiritual sacrifices to God. Now, one of those probably comes to mind, and that's Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12 says, Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. So that's one of the things as priests we do. We offer ourselves. But in addition to offering our bodies, we are to offer the praise of our lips, our good works, our time, our talents, our energy, our money, and other material goods. 
Every single believer is called to serve Christ in one another. We're called to build up the body of Christ, represent him to the world, intercede for others, and preach the gospel to those who are perishing. Even the people that we win to Christ become sacrifices for his glory. Romans 15, verse 16. Oh, and we're also called to make disciples. If you belong to Christ, then you are a part of a holy and royal priesthood. And of course, to be a holy priesthood, we have to be what? Holy. That's why in verse 15, in chapter 1, Peter says, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. The fourth picture that Peter gives us of the church is that of a chosen race and a holy nation. Now when I think about this, I can't help but think about the NBA draft, um, the, the NFL draft, or for me, um, March Madness NCAA Selection Sunday. Because if you ever watch those things, um, especially the March Madness, they always have these cameras at these schools of teams that may or may not make the tournament, you know? And so there's this little bit of kind of human interest in drama there. You know, you're really hoping you're going to make it. You're going to be one of those 64 teams chosen, right? You know, but a lot of them aren't. You know, so they show you the pictures of the ones that get selected and they all jump up and they, you know, I want to see the picture of the ones that, their names don't get called. You know, well, wait a minute. That, that probably wouldn't get you much airtime or a lot of advertising dollars. Um, but at the same time, what, what we, we learn from that is we all want to be chosen. <laughs> we want to be selected. I know I did. I think I've shared with you before, you know, um, one of the hardest things in, in, in my early years as a kid was not getting picked for spelling bees. Uh, If you know anything about me, you know why. I can't spell even now. But I, I would, you know, they, they, would, they would line up, you know, in the classroom. You know, you'd have a, a team line up on this side, another team to line up here, and everybody sits in their chair, and they get called one at a time, and they go over to their team. I was always the last person being picked. Always. How do you think that made me feel? It didn't make me feel bad enough to study harder, but it made me feel really bad. And, and even in sports, like with basketball, I was good, but I was short. So most people just kind of looked at me and figured, nah, he can't be any good, so they wouldn't pick me. And, and yet, when I read here that we are a chosen race and a holy nation, I feel special. And you should too. See, the good news is, is that God wants us on his team. And you've been drafted in the first round. That's pretty cool. You're, you're not a plan B for God. 
Jesus came and he died on the cross to save you from your sins, to adopt you into his family, that you would be his. You are chosen of God. And the scripture says that he chose us according to the kind intention of his will, so that, verse 9, we may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are a people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. You see, at one point in our lives, we were cut off from God. We were without hope. We were destined for hell, but God had mercy on us. Now we are the chosen of God. We are the people of God, and we are set apart to proclaim his excellencies. The Lord spoke again through the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 43. It says, the people who I formed for myself will declare my praise. Folks, this is why the church exists. This is why we were created. This is our purpose. We were designed to reflect Christ to the world and to declare to the world his majesty, his power, and his virtues. We are to declare the excellencies of he who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. Let me ask you, are you doing that? On a regular basis. When was the last time you shared with a not yet Christian what Christ has done for you? As God's chosen people, as his holy priest, this is what we are called to do. The fifth and final picture that... Peter gives us of the church in these verses is that of sojourners and exiles. Some of your translations may say aliens and strangers. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles, abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. This is another question we could ask. Are you striving against sin? see, this world is not our home. Our citizenship is in heaven. We are aliens and strangers or sojourners and exiles on this earth. And as such, we are to abstain from these passionate lusts, from sinful pleasures. And we are to honor our king and the kingdom of which we belong. We are not to be guilty of practicing sin, but we are to be guilty of practicing holy conduct. Verse 12, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Is your conduct honorable? And this is, I, I, I wish you, you just say yes and, and that's it. But the reality is every single day we have to make that choice. 
Every hour we have to choose to live in such a way that honors God, that does not put a stumbling block in front of other people. We will not do it perfectly, but we need to strive to be holy as God is holy, to abstain from sinful passions, and to keep our conduct honorable. And I I think I want to add one more thing here, and that is, Christians should never be known for what they abstain from. Although we should abstain from sin, that should not be the first thing that comes to somebody's mind when they think of a Christian. Oh, yeah, those are the people that don't smoke, chew, or go with girls who do, or whatever it might be. Rather, oh, those are the people who live so honorably who love so deeply, who care so greatly, who proclaim the good news of Jesus fearlessly. We should be known by our honorable conduct and our good works. Folks, behavior flows from being. Our actions flow out of our identity. And I can tell you here, now, I know who I am. And I know who I belong to. I know whose I am. And I know my purpose in life. And Satan knows that if he is able to keep us from understanding who we are and whose we are, we will be powerless and fruitless in our service to God and others. We need to remember that we are like nursing babes and living stones, that we are a part of a holy and royal priesthood, that we are a chosen race and a holy nation, that we are sojourners and exiles. If you're here this morning or watching online, and you have not yet bowed your knee to Christ as your Lord and Savior. I urge you to do that this morning. Admit to him what he already knows, that you're a sinner in need of a Savior, and that this morning you're willing to surrender your life to him. He's just a prayer away. Ask him to come into your life, forgive you of your sins, and give you the gift of eternal life. If you are a Christ follower, let me ask you again, do you long for the spiritual milk that God offers you that is in your possession almost everywhere you go? Are you being built up together in and with this body? And what spiritual sacrifices are you offering to God? If you haven't already, I would encourage you, plug into a life group. Find a place of service and dare God to use you in proclaiming his excellencies to a world that needs to hear let's pray together father I thank you for this morning for your word to us for your goodness your mercy Lord I thank you for Christ I thank you that you sent him to earth to die for our sins, that we might know you, that we might enjoy you, and that we might serve you. 
God, I pray that you would take your word which was spoken this morning, that you would penetrate our hearts with it, and that you would conform us to the image of your son and use us for the furtherance of your kingdom, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.